Now, take your Bible and open to John, John chapter 20. Verse 30 and 31. Verses 30 and 31. Text says, Many other signs, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the privilege of coming uh, together this morning and to uh, worship you and honor you and to tell you of our great love that we have for you. And we're so thankful for your written word. Uh, Again, help us to believe what you say, uh, to trust it, uh, to cherish uh, your word for the great gift that it is to us, and help us uh, just to live uh, rightly according to it. Uh, Guide our study in your word and exalt Christ, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to our study here in the book of John this morning, we're coming to the last two verses in the chapter. And here's the thesis statement that I've quoted over and over again in our study through uh, uh, the Gospel of John. This is why uh, John has written this book, this Gospel account. He wants to present evidence. And as he presents evidence, as he puts forth eyewitness historical testimony concerning the person of Jesus Christ, that he is indeed God's anointed, uh, he is the Messiah, he is the Christ, he is God's Son, the only, only Savior uh, of mankind. So he presents the evidence, and then there's an evangelistic appeal to respond to that evidence, right? That people would believe the truth. Again, by way of reasoning, by way of explanation, understanding what he has said, that you'd come to believe the reality of who Jesus Christ truly is, right? That you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, uh, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in his name. So he presents the evidence that leads to life. Now, all through this series, I have said repeatedly uh, that there is a necessity for every man to have a clear understanding of who Jesus really is. I've repeatedly said that what you believe about the person of Jesus Christ is the most important issue in your life, bar none. That what you believe about Jesus Christ will affect you both in time and in eternity. And your understanding of the person of Jesus Christ is not an academic exercise, it's not a religious exercise, it's not a theoretical exercise, it's not a philosophical exercise. The fact is your understanding of the person of Jesus Christ determines your eternal destiny. It, it has to do with your eternal soul. It's on that level of importance. Again, if he is nothing more than just a mere man, as many believe, if he's just a teacher, a good moral example, a philosopher, a religious leader of the past, even a prophet, then you can forget him safely. However, if he is God as he claimed to be, and as the writers of the New Testament put him forth to be, then you cannot ignore him. You must yield your life to him in total. You must repent. You must call out to him for mercy. You must turn from your sin and worship him and serve him faithfully. Because again, your life and your eternal destiny depends upon it. That's why John's written this book, this gospel. These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. So do you want to have your sin forgiven? All of your sin. Do you want to be free from a judgment and, and eternal punishment? Do you want to be rescued from Satan's power and become adopted into God's family as one of his beloved children and then lavishly be enriched forever with the wondrous, astonishing experience of limitless eternal heaven in his presence? 
If so, then that requires that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The great good news, as I've said often, and especially uh, lately, I, I think, from the pulpit, is that for, for the world, the great good news is God is willing to forgive your sin. Now, he doesn't have to do that, but God is willing to forgive your sin through Christ. Question is, are you interested? If so, then you must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, on the flip side of that truth is that failing to believe upon the person of Jesus Christ will result, result in your eternal condemnation, your eternal judgment. It's exactly what Jesus himself said back in John chapter 3, verse 18. He says, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him has been judged, what, already, because he's not believed the name of the only begotten Son of God. John the Baptist goes on in uh, verse 36, and he says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. Lord Jesus Christ himself says in uh, John 8, 24, For unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sin. And to die in your sin means that you're still guilty before a holy God. And the Bible says that those who have chosen not to believe upon the person of Jesus Christ, those who rejected God's mercy through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will pay for that error eternally in a literal place of uh, eternal conscious torment, a place from which there is no hope of ever escaping. It's a place called hell. A place that Christ repeatedly warned men to make sure they do not go there, a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, I know a lot of people reject the doctrine of eternal punishment in a literal place called hell, and, and that men want to believe uh, that not to be true, but Christ, again, warned of its reality. So what men want to believe, what Christ says is the actual reality of two different things. I understand that the doctrine of endless eternal punishment is a too terrifying a reality to even contemplate. Therefore, men block it out of their mind, even considering the truth of its existence, Choosing just to say it doesn't exist, doesn't, choosing to say that they don't believe in its reality. But again, the Bible warns, and the, the, the Bible is so compassionate, God is so compassionate in his warnings. He says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a warning. And again, what an eternal tragedy it would be if only to find out, uh, uh, for you to find out when it's too late, when you've just taken your last breath and you've stepped from time into eternity to know the reality at that moment then of a real literal eternal place of conscious torment that God warned you repeatedly not to go there. He warned you repeatedly not to go there and he gave you repeated opportunities not to go there. But you scorned God's mercy through Christ and you chose not to believe. You chose not to investigate the claims of Christ. You chose to go on living your life as though God does not exist. You refused the warning of a coming day of judgment. You chose to reject the truth that God eternally punishes sin. You chose to believe the life that you are personally not accountable to before God yourself. Therefore, you believe the lie that you're your, you are your own God. You believe the lie that you're your own God, that you could live your life any way you wanted to. You could make up your own rules to life as you went along. Therefore, you chose to reject the truth. And you chose not to believe. You chose not to accept God's pardon and forgiveness of sin through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, you chose eternal damnation. And again, it's Jesus Christ who says, you shall die in your sin unless you believe that I am. Unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sin. John says, look, these things have been 
written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. The great good news for the world is God is willing to forgive your sin through Christ. Are you interested? There's no other way to be reconciled to God. There's no other way to escape the coming judgment. There's no other door to eternal life. There's no other source, no other redeemer, no other savior. No other way except Jesus Christ himself. No other way to God. If you want forgiveness of sin and eternal life, you must come to God through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has said, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. So again, what you believe about the person of Jesus Christ is the most vitally important issue in your life. And the truth is, every man, every woman only has the time that has been allotted to him in this existence here on this earth to figure out what they believe about the person of Jesus Christ. You only have the time allotted to you. And no one knows how much time we have allotted to ourselves, right? No, nobody knows that but God. And again, once a man or woman takes their last breath and steps into eternity, and they fail to repent and place their faith upon the person of Jesus Christ in the time they had allotted to him, then that person, unfortunately, sadly, will know with absolute terrifying certainty the reality of who Jesus Christ is that they denied in their lifetime. These have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Uh, Paul says to uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, that God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God desires all men to be saved, come to knowledge of the truth. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believe that you might have life in his name. So again, God in his great grace, God in his great love, God in his great compassion has made uh, provision for men to have eternal life. John 3 and 16, for God so loved the world. The world's kind of a messed up place, have you noticed? <laughs> it seems to be growing in its messed upness. I know that's not proper, but it's all right. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. God desires that all men should be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Again, there's only one book, one God, one Savior, one gospel, only one faith found in the person of Jesus Christ. And apart from him, there's no escape from eternal judgment. Now again, sadly, the world is filled with countless millions upon millions upon millions of uninformed, ill-informed, misinformed people who think they are on their way to heaven when in reality they are eternally deadly wrong and they're on their way to eternal punishment because they rejected the person of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven that has been given uh, among men by which we must be saved except the name of Jesus Christ because he is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He, he is God come in the flesh. He is the Redeemer. There's no other Savior, no other way in the presence of God, no other way for forgiveness of sin except through Jesus Christ. The truth is, apart from biblical Christianity, all the religions of the world are, are, are lies. All the religions of the world are lies, they're deceptions. There's no other gospel, there's no other God except the God of the Scripture. And salvation and no other name except the name of Jesus Christ. And again, that's why John writes this gospel, to prove the reality of who Jesus is. And then again, by ray of reason and evidence, evangelistically call men and women to respond to that truth, to, to come to repentance and faith in the person of Jesus Christ that leads to life. So the conclusion is you can't turn to Christ too soon. 
You can't turn to Christ too soon. You can't turn from your sin and, and turn to the Redeemer too, or to run to the, the Savior too, too soon. These things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, uh, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. If you want your sins forgiven, come to Jesus Christ. Now, as we have seen here in the coming to the end of the 20th chapter, say, uh, Jesus has defeated death, right? He's defeated death, he, he's risen from the dead, and he's appeared. He first appeared to Mary Magdalene and then the, the other women who came to him early on that, uh, who came to him that early morning on that first day of the, of the week, the resurrection day, Sunday morning. And then he appeared later that evening, he appeared to his disciples. And the disciples, you know, they're behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. And he came with the message. The message was what? Peace, right? Peace be with you. He gives his uh, disciples an initial commission. He promises to empower them. And then he gives them authority to, to, to forgive sin by the proclamation of the truth. Now, in this first meeting, all the disciples were there except Thomas. Thomas wasn't there. Now, look up at verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when uh, Jesus came. The other disciples, therefore, were saying to him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I shall see the, in his hand prints, the, or hands the imprints of the nail and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Now, we covered this last time. And I told you, I, I don't think the, the issue with Thomas is so much as doubting. The issue with Thomas is the fact that he's what? He's missing. He's not present. He, he wasn't present with the other disciples the first time that Jesus chose to reveal himself and as a result of not being there, he missed the blessing that Christ had for his people. Now, Thomas, unfortunately, has gained the infamous nickname Doubting Thomas throughout almost all of church history. Uh, but I also told you the other men, they also doubted likewise. They, they doubted what Jesus said to be true about the fact that he was going to suffer and die. He'd be victorious over death. And he'd rise on the third day. And these other men didn't believe that either. They also doubted. I spent a great deal of our time last Lord's Day talking about how a doubt is really not uncommon, uh, even in the, the strongest of believers. I reminded you how even John the Baptist struggled with doubt. I'm the one who Jesus Christ called the, the greatest man who ever lived. He doubted. The reality is just sometimes life, right? Life happens, life circumstances, uh, trials, difficulties, tragedies, uh, sometimes fatigue, uh, sickness, illness, discouragement, uh, the bent of personality uh, can cause us at times to doubt. I believe that the, the, the genuine believers, even the strongest of believers, can at times have sincere doubts. But doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. Uh, unbelief is straight-up rejection of the truth. Uh, unbelief is suppression of the truth and unrighteousness. Unbelief refuses the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and unbelief, as I said, is eternally deadly. Now, doubt, on the other hand, occurs for us when we set our sights on our circumstances and set, take our eyes off of the person of Christ. And the antidote or the cure for doubt is to look at Christ, see who he is, see what he has done, and then believe upon him and trust. Believe what he says. Believe his word. Now, again, in the context of the story, in fairness to Thomas, we don't know why Thomas was not present. But the fact remains that by him not being present, he missed what Christ had for him. He missed a meeting with Jesus Christ. So whatever else or wherever else he was doing, whatever he was doing that night, it wasn't worth what he lost by missing the meeting with Christ. And again, upon the words of Christ himself, we can say with utmost confidence and positively affirm 
that when people are absent from the meeting of the fellowship of Christ, they miss meeting with the Lord and a fresh revelation of himself in the fellowship. That's what Jesus Christ says. Because he says in Matthew 18, verse 20, where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Don't show up, you miss Christ. Now again, we don't know why Thomas wasn't present. I mentioned to you by just way of pastoral experience and observation, when people are struggling in their life with some kind of significant issue, it's not unusual for them to disappear. It's not unusual for people to remove themselves from the fellowship. And perhaps that's what Thomas did. Again, he's struggling. He's struggling with discouragement. He's struggling with doubt. He saw Christ die. And perhaps he's uh, overwhelmed by personal grief with his uh, personal failures towards the Savior because he too is a part of that group that forsook Christ and fled when, he, when Jesus was arrested. So whatever the issue is, the result again is missing uh, the meeting. He missed the blessing that Christ intended for his disciples and specifically in the context of, context of Jesus' first appearance, uh, Thomas missed Christ. He missed his very presence. So last time I made a great appeal for us personally uh, and for thus, for those around us, to be an encouragement to those around us as brothers and sisters in Christ because we're part of the fellowship together, they're part of our body, we're part of a family together, not to forsake the assembly if at all possible. You see a brother or sister that's been absent for a week or so, just call them up. Maybe they're struggling, maybe their car broke down, maybe they're trying to walk from Toledo and they, their car doesn't work and they're still hitchhiking. Call them up, find out what's wrong with them. How can you be an encouragement to them? Everybody in the body of Christ has that responsibility. And I'm not going to hammer the point, but I am going to mention that we actually meet morning and evening here in the fellowship on the Lord's Day to encourage one another, worship, pray, open the Word of God, to hear what God has to say to us as we meet Christ in His Word. And I personally think, I'm not the Holy Spirit in your life, but I personally think that you should be here as a regular pattern of practice in your life, morning and evening. Now, I understand that's not always possible. I understand that certain people have certain physical limitations and situations that cause them not to be able to be here as much as they like to be. I get that. I understand that there are certain people have certain uh, that are people that have certain ministry obligations in the evening. I got that too. But just as a general bent of our life, we should try to be together in the fellowship, because when we are apart, we miss the blessing of Christ, and when we're apart, we can't consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. When we're apart, we can't bear one another's burdens. When, when we're not present, we miss the blessing that Christ has, his, has for his people and the fellowship on that day. Now, again, doubt may not be uncommon for believers, but doubt has to be a, a dealt with. Again, verse 24, Thomas, one of the 12, who's not with them when Jesus came. Verse 25, the other disciples, they were therefore saying to him, we've seen the Lord. He said to them, unless I shall see in his hands the imprints of the nails and put my fingers into the place of the nails and put my hand into uh, his side, I will not believe. Again, the united testimony of his friends uh, um, is unconvincing to him, to Thomas. Thomas needs tangible proof. Thomas, Thomas wants to put his finger into the nail prints. He wants to really thrust his hand into the spear wound. And, and Thomas uses a couple of interesting words in that statement, unless I shall see in his hands the imprint, tupos, it just means mark, stroke, print of the nails. And here's the word, put, ballow. It really is the, it's the same word that the soldiers used for casting lots. It's really kind of a, a throw, a cast, a vigorous movement. I'm going to throw my hand in there. Must have been a big hole, right? 
Unless I shall see in his hands the imprints of the nail and put my finger into the place, right? Shove my hand in there and, and, and put my hand in, in his side, I will not believe. The imprint, the two paws. Now, John Phillips in his commentary makes an uh, interesting observation, I think, when he points out that that very same word, uh, imprint, right, is the same word that Paul used concerning the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1.7. It says, 1 Thessalonians 1, 7, so that you became an example, a tupas, of all the believers in the world, all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Philip says this, what the print of the nail was to Thomas, these Thessalonians Christians had been to the world. They had on them, these Thessalonians Christians, they had on them the marks of Calvary. They were branded carrying with them the marks of the cross. He says, the world has every right to say, except we see the marks of the cross on you, we will not believe. The world's not interested, he says, in our doctrine, is not interested in our views about life, not interested in our faith. He asks, is there anything about you to remind them that Jesus died and rose again? The great question, the great statement. The world wants to see the cross in our lives, the way we live. The way we act, the way we interact. They're not interested in just words. They're interested in putting their hands into the prince. They want to see the cross in your life, my life, our life. Again, Thomas says, unless I shall see, I will not believe. Now, you've got to give Thomas uh, credit. At least he's more honest than most skeptics. Because most skeptics, skeptics and agnostics say, I cannot believe, right? I cannot believe because my great intellect just won't allow me to believe. I know you're people who are Christians have less better intellect than I do. And if you want to believe this nonsense, that's good. But my great intellect, he, he doesn't do that. He's more honest. That's a whole lie in and of itself. We don't have time for that. Thomas says this, I will not believe. Now, I'm not going to believe unless I see proof. Now, again, a lot of times, I think we have to be careful when we study the Bible. A lot of times we knock Thomas for doubting. We knock Thomas for uh, demanding visible proof. I just personally happen to think it's entirely significant that when the Lord Jesus Christ shows up, he shows up with great compassion and he meets Thomas in his need. He doesn't knock Thomas. He doesn't criticize Thomas. There's no angry words. There's no chastening. The Lord just graciously helps meet Thomas's need. Verse 26, after eight days, again, that's the following Sunday, by the way, the, uh, the um, Jews would have counted days. The Lord, again, is setting up Sunday to be the day of worship, a New Testament believer. After eight days, again, his disciples were inside, and Thomas was with them. So the first time Thomas was absent, listen, the second time Thomas was with them. Why do you think Thomas was with them? Oh, really? Because they listened to the sermon and they encouraged him. You got to be here. The pastor said you shouldn't forsake the assembly. My goodness, are you nobody's paying attention in this room? Maybe he was encouraged by his friends to show up. Don't forsake the assembly, right? Jesus came, the doors haven't been shut, stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Again, Jesus doesn't harshly rebuke Thomas. He's gracious. He's compassionate. Out of love, he just deals with him in his time of doubt. 
Verse 27, he said to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and be not unbelieving but believing. So again, the omniscient Christ, the all-knowing Christ was the, who, one, the one who is the unseen listener to the, the week before and he heard the words of Thomas and he meets him in his needs. Just graciously appears, right? He appears in the room and he just kindly with great care and compassion comes to Thomas. Most certainly you'd have to imagine every, every eye in the, in the room was riveted on Christ and Thomas to see what was going to happen next. And Thomas, what's going to happen next is Thomas is going to have his doubts driven away. Be not unbelieving, but believing. Now John Phillips points out that in that expression, be not, could really be rendered become not. Become not. Phillips says this, he says, neither faith nor unbelief stand still. Both either diminish or grow. Thomas was in peril of becoming a hardened unbeliever. You know, when you reject the truth and reject the truth and reject the truth, you continue to harden yourself to the truth. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. J.C. Rowell says what? Tomorrow is what? Devil's playground, right? Devil doesn't care what you do as long as you do it tomorrow. Don't believe today, believe tomorrow. You don't know if tomorrow's coming. The more you hear the truth, the more you reject the truth, the more you harden your heart. Neither faith nor unbelief stand still. Both either diminish or grow. Thomas was in peril of becoming hardened, a hardened unbeliever. Be not unbelieving, but be believing. So again, the passionate, condescending Christ, he shows up. He doesn't sharply rebuke Thomas. He just deals with him lovingly, caringly, gently. Again, in the presence of the risen Savior, Thomas's unbelief has changed to belief. Thomas sees his hands. He sees his side. He sees the wounds. The wounds demonstrate the reality that this is the one whom he saw executed, that it really is Jesus risen from the dead. And it's the wounds in which are found the greatest proof of all. In those wounds are found the love of Christ revealed. Stop and think about our lives. What is it that takes us from unbelief to belief? What is it that takes us from unbelief to belief? Well, what is it that takes us from that position to this other position, unbelief to belief to begin with? What is it that changed our hearts, that changes our hearts from being rebels against God and rebels against Christ and indifferent to him, careless concerning him and not having a strong desire to honor him? Most certainly, whatever that is, it has to be found in the truth, right? It's certainly not found in a lie. It has to be found in the truth. And fallen man in himself is not going to make up a story about incarnate deity, right? God coming and being a, a man and living and dying and bleeding for those who are guilty. That's not the way any of the uh, gods, the false deities of the worlds and the world's religions are put forward. They're always put forward as what kind of gods? Angry gods that have to be what? Appeased. This God appeases himself. This God condescends. He comes down and dwells with men. Fallen man isn't going to make up a story like that and condemn himself of all guilt and say that if you don't believe in this person, condemn themselves to eternal punishment. So lies don't draw us. It's the truth. It's the truth that began to draw us to Christ. It's the truth that began to change our heart. But ultimately, it really is the love of Christ that draws us and transforms us completely. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. And if you understand what he's really saying there, he's not speaking about our love for Christ, 
uh, in the context and in the vernacular, the, uh, the word structure, it's a genitive. He's talking about Christ's love for us. Christ's love for us controls us. And again, the tangible demonstration of the truth of Christ's love for us is demonstrated in his wounds upon Calvary's cross. The truth of his literal physical resurrection from the dead. That truth is the best witness to the validity of the gospel and everything the gospel offers to men. Reach here your finger. See my hands. Reach here your hand. Put it into my side. It's the wounds of Jesus Christ that caused Thomas and us to take our focus off of ourselves, to stop doubting and to start trusting and to embrace the love of the Savior. It's the wounds of the risen Christ that says, there's no longer any reason to doubt. You can trust me. Christ saying, I am victor over sin, death, and the grave. I'm the absolute sovereign. He said to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands, reach here your hand and put it into my side. Be not unbelieving, but believing. And upon that, that's when Thomas makes that great confession, verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord, my God. Very straightforward confession of the deity of Christ to which Jesus fully accepts. A very straightforward affirmation, listen, of personal belief. My Lord, my God. Again, evidence leads to faith, which takes us to life. And that's exactly why John has written the book. These things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in his name. Evidence leads to faith that leads to eternal life in the person of Jesus Christ, and no one is hopeless. There's no hopeless cases. Christ saves the greatest of sinners. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord, my God, verse 29. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Because you have seen me, have you believed? Now, now the truth is, uh, all the other disciples didn't believe, right? They, they didn't believe initially that Christ defeated death until he saw him physically. So none of them are really in a place to criticize it, old Thomas here, in his statement, unless I see, I will not believe. Because in, the essence, in essence, they'd all been there. Thomas is just a little more vocal in his expression of unbelief than the rest. Now, by the time John writes this gospel account, that we're working our way through here, the, the gospel of John, the apostolic age is over, right? He's writing at later 80, 90, somewhere right there. He, the apostolic age is over. All the visible appearances of Christ have done, are done. They're over. Christ has already ascended a long time ago. All, of, all the signs have long since ceased. Therefore, when John writes this, when he takes up the pen and writes this gospel, faith has replaced sight. Right? Faith has replaced sight. Again, all the sign miracles have ceased, uh, and that's the way it's been ever since. Faith has replaced sight. I think at times we mistakenly try to convince ourselves that if we only had some kind of supernatural vision... 
If we only had uh, some kind of supernatural revelation, if, if Jesus would just reveal himself to us in some very special way that by sight or touch or hearing, but that would really assist our faith. Sometimes we mistakenly try to convince ourselves that if we had some kind of encounter with the miraculous, that, that, would, be, uh, that, would, that would help us uh, on our belief, that we'd believe God better. We mistakenly try to convince ourselves if we had just some kind of special esoteric experience, that our, our doubts would be lessened and our faith would grow. But that's not what the Bible teaches. I think it is entirely significant that Peter, in 2 Peter 2, when he's speaking about the fact that he and James and John were on the Mount of Transfiguration, when there are eyewitnesses of the majesty of Christ, chapter 2, verse, uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, says this, For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, such as utterance was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Verse 19, he says, And so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as a light shining in the dark place as the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I do think it's entirely significant that Peter said, look, we had this great experience, this vision, this voice, and as wonderful as that was, he says, we have the prophetic word made what? More sure. We have the word, the prophetic word made more sure. In essence, he's saying the word of God is a higher, more reliable revelation than any experience, even the greatest of experiences, hearing the voice of God the Father and seeing the transfiguration of Christ. And that's exactly what Jesus is telling Thomas here. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Then he says, blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. That's us. That's us. Because Paul says faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing by the word of God. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Richard Phillips warns as follows. He says, those who insist on signs and wonders and miracles can have them at a price. Satan, he says, is only willing, too willing to come to oblige he says, after the, church ages, uh, after the church age, when God once more takes up direct dealings with the nation of Israel, signs and miracles will resume. Pentecost was only a partial fulfillment of Joel uh, 2, uh, 28 to 31. In the apocalypse, we will see God's two witnesses performing miracle after miracle, Revelation 11 and so forth. But he says, they will be opposed by counterfeit satanic miracles. It will be an age of the miracles. The church age, however, is one of faith, not sight. Hence, the, Lord, the Lord's special uh, uh, benediction or the special beatitude upon us. Blessed, right? Blessed are those who did not see, but yet what? Believed. Thomas saw the physical resurrected Christ. He believed. We in the room, we have never seen the physical resurrected Christ, yet we what? We believe. And we are what? Blessed. That's what Christ said. Blessed. Are they who did not see yet believe? We haven't seen him, but we, see, we, we, we believe we're blessed. And we believe because the word of God has told us that he's defeated death. 1 Peter 1.8, although you have not seen him, yet you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him 
you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory. That's what Christ says, blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. Right? The request for evidence has been made uh, uh, on uh, this one situation, this one certain uh, um, time here for uh, Thomas. God, Christ graciously meets that need on an individual uh, level uh, at this uh, specific time in history. But in general, uh, signs of the miraculous aren't, aren't the normal. Uh, in general, signs and miracles aren't the normal, and signs and miracles do not produce genuine saving faith. Why is that? Because signs and miracles can't convert the heart, right? Signs don't convert the heart or restore the soul. Uh, signs, miracles, wonders don't create new creations in Christ. Uh, again, the Bible says salvation comes by faith alone in, in the person of uh, Jesus Christ alone. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, not by signs and wonders. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. So again, just think about the Lord Jesus Christ and his earthly uh, life. Uh, he performed many miracles. Man, I've told you before, his signs, uh, uh, the miraculous power that he had was so numerous, so often, so undeniable, it was a supernatural power. Nobody ever denied it, not even his greatest enemies. But people still, many people still refuse to believe. In fact, unbelief rejects signs intentionally and ultimately. Unbelief rejects signs intentionally and ultimately. Because again, it was unbelief that put the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. It was unbelief that murdered him. Unbelieving men chose not to believe, even when they saw throughout his entire life, they saw that he healed the blind and the lame, and he cast out demons. He had power over the physical realm. He raised the dead. Unbelief rejects the facts. Un un unbelief blinds men's eyes to the truth. As men in unbelief do not want to know the truth, they're, they're rejectors of the truth. I mean, stop and think, I was listening earlier in the week, uh, you know, the audio uh, uh, of the book of Exodus. Think about how many times Pharaoh saw the miraculous hand of God, the power of the hand of God. And then Pharaoh did what? Hardened his heart. He hardened his heart, and God hardened his heart eventually against the reality of what he even saw. That's unbelief, right? Unbelief always suppresses the truth in what? Unrighteousness. And unbelief not only does it suppress the truth in unrighteousness, but unbelief gives active evidence of satanic activity in a person's life. Uh, 2 Peter, or 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they may not see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's evidence of satanic activity in a person's life. Unbelief. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And again, that is us. So John is writing this gospel for those who have never seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ physically. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. Pistuo. Uh, it means think to be true. Considered something to be true. Something worthy of your trust. Therefore, it's accepted as genuine, real. Now, the Greek word for faith is pistis, and it always occurs in John in verbal form, which is pistuo. Therefore, it's always translated as belief. 
It's about 101 times throughout the, uh, John's gospel compared to a combined use, use of the two words faith and belief uh, over in Romans, about 64 times, only 22 times in Mark. So, so G, John uses it 101 times, right? So obviously John is concerned about faith. And he wants all that he has said concerning Jesus to be accepted as true. It's worthy of your trust. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. So doubts are alleviated when we have faith in what God says to be true. That's when doubts are alleviated. When we just believe what God says to be true. Blessed are they who did not see yet believed. Uh, Richard Phillips says this. He says, do you have conditions and, and, and demand things that you must see before you will consider believing in Jesus? He says, Jesus might or might not answer them the way you desire. Listen, but he will, be, he will reveal himself to you personally if you will seek him through his word. How many people have you met who are unbelievers and say, I don't believe? And you ask them the next question, uh, have you ever read the Bible? And they say, no. Many errors in the Bible. Have you ever taken it out and read yourself? Well, you know, my great intellect. <laughs> my great intellect, I can't pick up a book and read it. Because you know what? It might be what? Might be true. Might be true. And I'm certainly not going to open it up if it might be true and convict me of my sin, right? Phillips goes on, he says, Jesus was reminding Thomas that there would be legions of disbelievers saved without physical demonstration of Christ's resurrection a body but with an equally effective revelation of Christ in the written record of the apostles. That is through the word, right? It is through his word that Jesus stands before us today, he says, calling us to faith with self-disclosure that is just as real and powerful as, uh, as that which brought to Thomas uh, to his knees uh, with the special blessings for those who believe. And he said, look, you have the written word. It's a better revelation. Blessed are you if you believe and you've not seen. He goes on and says, Jesus insisted to Thomas, if you believe without having seen, you will be blessed. And he asked the question, what are the blessings? He says, they include the blessings received by anyone who's ever believed. Your sins will be forgiven you. You will receive a free gift of eternal life. You will be accepted in God's family, embraced as a dearly beloved child. You will be delivered from the judgment that is to come. You will be raised in a glorious body like the resurrected body of Christ. You'll have the power to lead a holy and spiritually peaceful life. And you will be blessed to be used by God as a witness for the salvation of others. These blessings and more will be yours by making Thomas's confession your own, claiming that Jesus is my Lord and my God. He says, if you've done this, then you can marvel at the truth that Jesus' final gospel blessing was a benediction spoken for you. Blessed are those who have not seen but yet believed. Again, many other signs, therefore, Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book, but these have been written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believe that you might have life in his name. Now, it really is interesting to me, when you come to these last two verses here, that historically, uh, I'm not sure why, but historically, many commentators, many godly men have kind of stumbled for a variety of different reasons uh, with these last two verses. Uh, again, in my mind, needlessly, I think very simply... Uh, John has come to the finality of his gospel. 
But what about chapter 21? It might, I mean, I read some guy said, he can't take his pen and put it down and then all of a sudden pick it up again. Why can't he? Why, why can't he? There's a thing in writing, I'm not a writer, but it's called the what? After you finish the book and you have one more thing to say, it's called the epilogue. Oh, maybe you can take your pen up and write again. I think that's 21. I think that's chapter 21. It's just an epilogue. In the, in the epilogue, you have, in the chapter, Jesus is going to mas- manifest himself again to the seven disciples, right? He's going to restore Peter, and then he's got one final reference uh, to the Apostle John himself. But really, when you come here to the end of chapter 20, that's really the finality of the gospel. The goal of the gospel has been reached. Uh, the record of John's account of Jesus' ministry is culminated with Thomas's affirmation concerning, concerning Jesus Christ. Verse 28, my Lord and my... God. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in his name. John has presented the evidence that has led to faith, that has led to eternal life, and that's been his goal. His goal has been accomplished. Right? All the stories to present the fact that Jesus is the Christ, my Lord and my God. Now, when, when John says, uh, many other signs, therefore also Jesus performed the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, I just think it's an affirmation of the fact, again, John is acknowledging that there are other books out there. There are other gospel accounts. Again, that makes sense. He's the last gospel writer, and there's other books that have signs and miracles, that the works that Christ uh, uh, performed, uh, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Some would suggest by count that there's about 40 separate miracles that Jesus did, and if you look them up in the four uh, uh, gospel accounts, but here in John there are seven, seven specific miracles. Now there are probably many more. There are probably many more miracles that Jesus performed when that he performed here on the earth, other than just the forty that somebody has uh, cataloged out of the other out of the gospels. Uh, if you look at the last verse in John's gospel. It alludes to that fact that there are probably many more, right? John 21, verse 25, the last verse in the book. Maybe he did 40 a day, I don't know. John 21, verse 25, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the whole, even the world itself could not contain the books which were written, right? He could have done a lot more things. Many signs, therefore, Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book, but these that are written in this book, these have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in his name. So evidence leads to faith, which leads to life. Now, through John's gospel account, he does put forward seven different signs that Jesus performed to convince uh, the the readers of Jesus' true identity, seven signs that convincingly uh, prove uh, the deity uh, uh, of the person of Jesus Christ, uh, the divine power that he had, uh, that he is actually God incarnate, God in the flesh. When we see the word sign or use the word sign, for all intents and purposes, uh, uh, biblically, we're actually speaking of a miracle, right? And, and, and I told you that biblically signs uh, point to something. Uh, you see a sign that doesn't mean you're there, right? The sign says Indianapolis doesn't mean you're in Indianapolis. It's pointing you towards Indianapolis. You see a sign that says uh, bagels or donuts. Trust me, you don't want the sign. A little hard. 
right? You, you want what the sign is pointing to. You want the bagel. You want the donut. And again, John says, these signs have been written in this book to point us to Christ, to the person of Jesus Christ, because he's the object of saving faith. We're not just saved by believing certain truths. We're not just saved by believing certain doctrinal uh, statements are true. We're not saved by trusting the church to take care of our souls. We're saved by responding personally by faith to the biblical revelation concerning uh, the person of Jesus Christ, his, wor uh, his word, his work, his person. And then trusting or yielding our lives uh, to him in total as our Lord and Savior. So again, John writes with the express purpose, present the evidence to lead men and women to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing he might have life in his name. So again, the goal is eternal life. Eternal life is available only through the person of Jesus Christ and only those who believe in the reality of who he is. So again, John presents this evidence that points people to that's uh, trying to lead people to, to believe that taking people to the position of eternal life because God desires that all men would be what? Saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So again, what do signs do? Signs point us to something or someone. So signs here in this book are pointing us to the identity of who Jesus Christ is. Now I'm going to go through them pretty quickly, not every one of them, but uh, at least by way of text, but some of them, most of them by text. If you want to follow me, you can, but I can't wait for you because I'm in a hurry. All right? There's seven of them. First sign. You can just write them down and go back and look at them later. The first sign, remember what Jesus performed is he changed the water into wine. That's John chapter 2. John 2, 11. This is the beginning of the signs which Jesus did in Canaan of Galilee and to manifest his glory or manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him. Right? So the first uh, uh, um, uh, miracle in his, in his public ministry, for the first 30 years of his life, he never performed a miracle. And this, this miracle, turning the water into wine, is a massive creative miracle. It manifests his glory, the glory of the incarnate son, the incarnate, uh, incarnate God. Again, that's the whole point. This is no ordinary fella. Again, signs are given that you might believe. So they're really an encouragement to you, to the faith that you have, you who already believe, or they're an encouragement to the faith to those whom God is now calling or drawing to himself through the person of Christ and through the word. Remember I said earlier, neither faith nor unbelief stand still, right? They either diminish or grow. The second sign is that he heals the, uh, um, uh, the, the official son of Capernaum. You can look over chapter 4 if you want or just listen. Um, the, the boy was near death. You remember the story? Uh, he rebukes the crowd there in John chapter 4 for their unbelief. Verse 48 says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you shall simply not believe. Uh, but the Lord graciously heals this uh, royal official son. He does it from a distance. So that the very moment that uh, Jesus pronounces the boy healed was the seventh hour. The fever leaves him. Uh, John chapter 4, verse 53. So the father knew that it was neither the, the father knew that it was the hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. Uh, again, this is the second sign that Jesus performed when he'd come out of Judea into Galilee. The third sign is in chapter 5. We're not going to turn there, but just that's when he healed the, the paralytic. Remember the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda? Uh, he was laying paralyzed uh, uh, in some fashion for 38 years. He, he believed some local superstition that the first person in the water, when the water was stirred, uh, an angel would stir the water, and the first person that got into the water would be healed, but he never got into the water because nobody would take care of him. Nobody would help him get into the water, so he just laid there for 38 years. And then Jesus comes along, and he does what? Heals him instantly. Commands the man to take up his pallet and what? 
block. I mean, it's an incredible miracle of restoration. No rehab. No therapy. Just stand up and walk. A great demonstration of the miraculous power of Christ. The third sign. Fourth sign, you might remember, was in uh, John chapter 6, feeding the 5,000. Remember, again, it's another creative miracle. A great demonstration of the power of Christ. It starts out with two fishes and five loaves, and he just stands there and just creates food. 5,000 men, counting wives and children. Some would suggest maybe up to 20,000 people. He just makes lunch. Hey, honey, is it okay if we invite a few people over for lunch today? I go, no, no. 20,000 unexpected guests. Just makes lunch. Dynamic creative miracle. Everybody ate as much as they wanted, and they had 12 baskets left over. Look over at chapter 6 if you're trying to fall. Chapter 6, he walks on water. Same, same chapter, John 6, he feeds the 5,000, maybe the 20,000, he walks on water in the Sea of Galilee. Chapter 6, verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting to the boat, they started to uh, cross the Sea of Capernaum. And it had already become dark, and Jesus had not come yet, uh, come uh, to them yet. And the sea began to be stirred and began to strong. A strong wind was blowing. Verse 19. When, therefore, they had rowed about three or four miles, they beheld Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. They were willing, therefore, to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So Jesus has the power to create. He has the power to heal. He has the power over illness, power over deformity. He has the power over nature because he is what? He is the all-powerful one. John 9, sixth sign. John 9, verse 1, he heals the, the man who was born blind. John 9, 1, he passed by and saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus answered and said, It is neither that man has sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. He says, We must work the works of him who sent me. As long as it is day, night is coming, when no man can work, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He said that, uh, when he said that, he spat on the ground and made clay spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. Verse 7, and he said to him, go wash uh, the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And he went away and washed and came back seeing. Seventh son. You should probably turn there if you haven't up to this point. Chapter 11, John chapter 11. Raises Lazarus from the dead. An undeniable miracle, an undeniable demonstration of Jesus' power over death. Because Lazarus has been dead in the tomb, and everybody knows it. He's been dead in the tomb for four days. Everyone knows it. It's an undeniable fact. John 11, verse 32. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you have... If you had been here, my brother would have not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews were saying, Behold how he loved him. 
Some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of him who was blind have kept this man from, uh, also from dying? Jesus, therefore, began de- being deeply moved uh, within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave. The stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you, if you believe, you shall see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heardest me, and I knew that thou hearest me always because of the people standing around. I said that they may believe and thou, that you did send me. Verse 40, uh, 43. And when, he had said this, and when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth, And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Verse 45. Many, therefore, of the Jews who had come to Mary beheld what he had done, believed in him, but. Verse 46, but. Some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what? are we doing for this man is performing many signs if we let him go on like this all men will believe in him and the romans will come and take away both our place and our nation again even the sight of the reality of somebody being raised from the dead even in that reality some men won't believe that's again because signs don't save Signs cannot convert the fallen human heart. Again, Pharaoh saw many signs, yet he didn't believe. He, rather, he hardened his heart. Just like many people throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ saw the signs that Jesus performed, they didn't believe. They hardened their hearts. Salvation doesn't come by way of hearing or, or doesn't come by way of signs. Salvation doesn't come by way of signs, doesn't come by way of the miraculous Salvation comes by repentance and faith in the person of Jesus Christ. There's an eighth sign, if you want, uh, of the miraculous catch of fish in chapter 21. Some men would just say, well, that's just God using his sovereignty. Okay. Back to the, back to the, to the verse here in chapter 20. Many other signs, verse 30, many other signs. Uh, Jesus also performed the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book. These have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believe you might have life in his name. Uh, some, tom- some commentators believe John was also referring to the point of the, uh, the, the, the post-resurrection appearances. These other, you know, he, he, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared. Uh, maybe that's a sign that you could add to the list if you wanted. Uh, again, obviously the death, uh, burial, resurrection of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the greatest sign that proves the reality of who he is is more than just a mere man. He's God come in human flesh. But guess what? Men still refuse to believe. Men still refuse to believe after he raises somebody from the dead, after he himself defeats death and rises from the dead, because signs don't save. Signs can't convert the fallen human heart. So again, the thesis statement. These things have been written. Look very carefully. Look very carefully. These things have been written. Truth. Evidence, historical testimony, leads to faith, it leads to life. These things have been written that what? Who? You. 
you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. <laughs> don't, don't miss this. God in his great kindness, great love is using John under the inspiration of the person of the Holy Spirit to write a letter to you. To write a letter to you. Signs don't save anyone. Signs don't convert the heart. But faith in the person of Jesus Christ does if you just simply look at him. Unbelief is the core of man's problem that's only solved by belief in what Jesus Christ has to say. If we had looked to Jesus Christ, all our doubts are removed. Right? It's interesting. It says, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And Lord willing, we'll look into that because that, uh, as they would say, that phrase, the, the Christ, the Son of God, is a pregnant phrase. There's just a lot in there uh, for us to unpack. But let's stop now and pray. Our Father and our God, we are thankful for the truth that you have presented to us. Oh, what a gracious God you are. And you've written this letter to us that we might believe. So we give you all honor and praise and, and thank you for, uh, for Christ and for uh, the word. And thank you for the great privilege of knowing you and being drawn uh, from darkness to light because of your great compassion and love. It's the wounds. It's the wounds that demonstrate the reality of your love for us. The fact you defeated death gives us tremendous hope and we believe because your word tells us that is true. We thank you for this uh, uh, text, and now we thank you for the great privilege we have of taking the Lord's Supper together that remind us of this great reality. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.